This podcast today feels like it's very destructive. Welcome to the Humanist Agenda podcast. This is our ninth episode, and we are having a discussion about my American life. My name is Sherry. My name is Kenny. Selena. And my name is Will. Uh, so this is following the lecture given by Tony Martin, uh, titled, as Sherry mentioned, My American Life, in which he outlined some of the events and the more important and notable events of his family's life and their, uh, their integration into American culture and how that led to, uh, to his life and his perspectives. And we're going to be uh, jumping a little bit from that onto racism in general and continuing the conversation from there. So as uh, many people may know, Elizabeth hosted uh, a discussion group at her house following the My American Life presentation. And um, the four of us on the podcast were in attendance. And we broke up into three different groups of about four to five members each, and we discussed some of these topics. So if you hear us referencing uh, prior group conversations, that's where it's from. It's funny, I was talking to Tony Martin when he was in our little discussion group, and he uh, we were wondering what his opinion of Canada was. So he talked about how people of color in the States think of Canada as this sort of shining light because because of the Underground Railroad and that sort of thing, they saw Canada as this beacon of hope. Uh, so it's interesting to hear her, his perspective of what Canada is because we have, you know, obviously a different perspective of that we still see racism in Canada. And we hope that we're not quite as bad, maybe, as what we see from the States, but we know that it, it trickles in. In response to, to what Sherry mentioned there about, uh, you know, Canada being a beacon of light, from the perspective of uh, black people in America due to the Underground Railroad. It, I, it was brought up in my group that it's, it's too bad that I, I feel, though, that Canadians don't haven't internalized that conception of themselves. I, I mean, maybe some have, but uh, from my experience, uh, we just kind of generally accept that, oh, you know, we're multicultural, we're not, we're not too racist, we're not bad, but we, we don't really give too much of a thought to it especially not in the sense of actively combating racism because we feel like it's a part of our culture. Uh, and it's, it's too bad we don't see more of that. I sometimes feel like people think it doesn't, either doesn't quite exist uh, in Canada or we've solved it because right. of multiculturalism. But multiculturalism doesn't solve the problem of racism. The U.S. is just as multicultural, right? Yeah. yeah. I think a big thing that we do have here, though, is stereotypes. And I feel like people sometimes don't necessarily tie the stereotypes that they have in their minds about different cultural groups with racism or may not see how those stereotypes impact how they react or interact with other people so I feel like maybe it's like a more subtle racism where when we think of like a lot of U.S. racism because of like how much their accessibility to like guns we often think of racism as like someone being shot and that is obviously less common in Canada, but I think it's... Oh, really? People getting shot in Canada? No, no uh, the, the perception of racism in the U.S. As, as physical violence? I don't think so, but I think that's like the... the obviously, that's not it, racism. It adds almost like another layer. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, there's stereotypes. Stakes still, are higher. The stakes are higher. It's there's like still the stereotypes. Extreme, yeah. It's the most extreme form of, like, racism. It's like all these mm. situations where someone is pulled over and shot or someone goes to someone's house mm. and asks for help and is shot. You know, it's the like, most overt one and I think the most we 
the one we most hear about in Got the it. states. Yeah, the one that gets in the news versus a systemic one, which is a little bit harder to see. Right, and I, f- I feel like that the fact that uh, you know some of those more high energy uh, examples are are being talked about. That's partly what's fueling the uh, urgency in movements like Black Lives Matter, where where it, uh, it really is becoming a polarized conversation. There's a problem where you do have a lot of allies who are vehemently fighting against what they see as, as overt, overtly racist systems and, and whatnot in society. And the problem, well, not, I mean, obviously it's good that they're doing that, but the problem that comes from that is you get polarization where you, you get um, the opposite movements starting to rear their ugly heads, right? And, and uh, say, oh, well, you know, if you have special privileges for black people, why can't you have special privileges for white people? Or if you're going to form an identity around being black, why can't I form an identity around me being, being white, right? And you, uh, white supremacist movements are on the rise and, uh, and, and all of that's going on as well. I think that's a good point. Good point. Yeah, <laughs> because, it, yeah, it's interesting that, that you see that polarization happen because if people sort of had that ability to look introspectively and understand their privilege, they would understand why this movement exists. And why it's important to have that movement. Mm-hmm. Sarah recommended, Sarah Slade recommended a podcast to me. And she put it on the Facebook group, the You Are Not So Smart podcast. There was an episode called Uncivil Agreement. And I've listened to about half of it. I didn't, I wasn't able to, I didn't have the time to get through all of it. But they talked about one of these experiments that was built around these two kids that were very identical, they had, you know, similar grades in school, they had similar disposition, that sort of thing. They set them up in two different camps, summer camps, for three weeks. And so the first week was with the one camp, they kind of established themselves in that camp. Then they told them about this other camp that was happening. Mm -hmm. And so immediately the boys wanted to have this um, uh, sports... Uh, competition with them and it was a soccer game I think could have been either that or baseball oh okay I don't know some sport sports ball sports ball <laughs> they were going to sports against each other yes they were going right. to do sports against each other right so uh, when they did meet up immediately those boys were sort of very established in their groups and they started fighting like physically against the other group so they didn't even wait to meet the other group they just had this this in-group sensation where they already knew the other team was bad and they already blamed the other team for things that were happening around the camp and that sort of thing. Uh, it was very interesting. It's just tribalism. Like, people just are innate nature to want to be in a tribe and want to be part of a group and see another group as outside of that tribe. Yeah, and they also talked about in-group, out-group, how you start surrounding yourself with people who believe the same thing to the point where you bolster yourself up so much that you see yourself and your group as the best and the other group is the worst. Well, it's, it, it's obviously an evolutionary adaptation uh, that's kind of ingrained itself in our psychology, but it's also interesting all the ways in which it's taught you know, to children. Right, like just from the starting days of going to school, right? You're taught like I am a Westmount Wolf, you know, and and uh, and and the schools compete against each other, right? And 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 everyone knows which school is your school's rivalry, right? So when I went to high school, uh, Central Secondary School, you know, our rivalry on the football field was always CCH, and 
and that's sprinkled into all other elements. You know, you meet someone at a party, and you know, oh, what school do you go to? Oh, CCH. Oh, I went to Central. Right? You know, and it's 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 a fun little disagreement, but it's in sometimes it's not as fun. You know, some people take it more seriously, and then you know, people are always standing up to sing the national anthem in school. Right? Patriotism is taught. So all of these different ways that kids are immediately taught. And sometimes by their parents, you know what religion they're right they ascribe to. So they're all they they're automatically boxed into all of these different rigid categories. And then when you combine that with their psychology, they're they're likely to to start to resent members of the other group and, and oppose them, and, and you know create echo chambers with other people with similar thoughts and or even just similar birth cities, right? You know, what is this? it could be anything. Yeah, we tend to kind of cluster together with anyone we find we have commonalities with. I find. Like, as soon as everyone went to university, if you knew someone from your high school, you kind of grouped with them. Right. Or if you go to university and you're like, oh, we're from the same hometown or from the same city. Oh, like, let's talk about all the things you have in common. So I do kind of agree with this idea that you find people who you can relate to. And obviously, complexion and how someone looks is like an easy grab for that. So, I mean, if, if we have the tendency to group to our own cliques, our own tribes, when it applies to racism, how do we... How do we fight it? Do we replace, instead of grouping people by race, we group people by school? <laughs> well, I don't, I don't how, even... how do we fight our internal desire to become a tribe? That's a good question. Um, yeah, so I was wondering earlier about you know, what might the ideal society be? You know, uh, the ideal future where we're doing the best we can with our own psychology, right? You know, we acknowledge that we have these tendencies, these psychological dispositions, and and we've created all of these ways that our society can, instead of exploiting these for political gain or for economic benefit or, or whatever they're currently being exploited for in our society, and instead we do the opposite and, and we create ways to, um, to fight against uh, the demons of our nature, and such as you know, a non-discriminatory hiring practices being implemented and, and whatnot. And we have a society where the employers... They, they actually, they're okay with that, right? They acknowledge that they're not going to make the best, most impartial decision if that they have the applicant, for example, sitting right in front of them. If instead, you know, they get a, a resume that doesn't include, you know, the race on it and they make a decision based on that, they might know that they're going to be able to better navigate around their own biases. And, and that would be an, an interesting thing to see, you know. Uh, Are you talking about hiring based on just the resume? Um, I mean, that was maybe a poorly uh, illustrated example. But talking about how, how that's one example of a way to eliminate a potential bias is instead of being immediately aware of the person's uh, you know, gender or race, right? Just finding ways to remove the non-critical information from the decision-making because you're aware that your own psychology is going to, is going to cause you to make biased decisions if given this other information. Right. It's interesting that you mentioned that because I have a friend in the dental hygiene field uh, and he's a male in a very uh, highly female dominated field and he found that he just wasn't getting interviews so he stopped putting his first name on his mm. resume and then he started getting interviews but they oh. expected like a female to show up and they were right. very shocked. <laughs> right. Yeah. Wow, that's, that's like... interesting. Your name gives away a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Like a, when I look at resumes, when I look at a name, you already know likely race, a gender. I mean, you can tell mm-hmm. a lot. I know when I applied to work in South Korea for teaching, I had to send a picture with my resume. 
That's so also I, in Europe, like that as well, where you send a picture. I found that interesting. Well, I feel like, I feel like you know, eliminating all of these things, it shouldn't be the goal, right? Because, because some of these these indicators are actually providing valuable information as a generalization for employers and for agencies and, and whatnot. Yeah, I, I don't think like we're completely removing your name is like the best strategy going forward in the future. Well, that might actually be but, a good example, the name one, because because you aren't losing any any critical information by losing the name, right? You're only losing the ability to potentially make biased decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so for example, the resume could include questions about all the pertinent information. And if, if let's say, religion or or race or gender for some reason for that job was an actual important factor, well then just include that and have them fill out only those. But if, for example, your your uh, your sex isn't a pertinent piece of information, then just don't then try and exclude that as to eliminate it bias as much as possible. Uh, so, so the idea is is you would find situations where where this inf- additional information is valuable and where it isn't. And, and try and make sure that we're only making decisions based on the valuable information at hand. And maybe yeah. also make sure that most jobs are open and aren't dependent on your gender, your race, or your age. Yeah, see, that's a, that's a, that's a little bit more contentious philosophically. Like, I, I mean, personally, I, I don't know that, I, I, that you can just automatically agree as a first principle that absolute equality despite differences and... No, 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 but I'm saying gender itself. If there's differences, that's different but if you're saying it's just based on gender like there are very few jobs where it should be dependent on your gender unless it's like something like security where they need a male and a female sorry it sounded like you were saying even in the jobs where gender does make a difference we should try and make amendments to those hiring practices or to those jobs themselves such that gender isn't an influencing factor and i don't know that i'd go that far are you thinking of like firefighters like men and women differences because then i would say go based on strength not based on their gender but wouldn't men be typically stronger than women like would you wouldn't you have to have a different qualifier for men and women no because Because men have like different body structures if the job is the job you should meet the minimum regardless of you're a man or a woman and and that's why i'm drawing the line because there is uh there is disagreement on this subject you know um on on the question of is gender ever a relevant factor and if it is should it be but like, like like should we allow it to be so so even if we do acknowledge like sherry is acknowledging that men and women have different body structures and different abilities physically. You know, there's a, there's a further question of should the fact that, that women on average have less strength prevent them from having an equal opportunity at, at getting a job that requires strength? For example, I'm on, I'm on the side that I think the employer should hire whoever's best for the job, where other people care less about the efficiency of, of a hiring structure and more about the equality for all members in society. And I think there, there's good arguments to be made on both sides, but that's a separate discussion. So if we're going back on a topic of racism, one of the topics that came up during the discussion was around in Canada, one of the main issues that we run into is obviously racism and racism against uh, Native communities here in Canada, whereas obviously uh, racism towards either Blacks or Hispanics are a little bit more prevalent in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So in Canada, we, we've seen you know some uh, reparations in terms of, of apologies from our 
leaders in terms of what has occurred in the past. From your perspective, you know, what, what's the current situation right now in terms of how do we continue the path forward to making reparations? I think with Indigenous people, with First Nations, it's really difficult to give them reparations because what they what they what I have heard that they want is more they want a separation from Canada. So they don't want to be necessarily integrated into yeah they don't want to be integrated they don't want to be included in that way they want to have their own communities and to be able to govern their own communities however because they're within Canada's borders it's very difficult because technically by law we own their land essentially but we took a whole bunch of that land from them so I don't even know where to begin maybe giving them back some of the land but do we have that land to give them I don't know I personally I the whole idea of reparations uh I, I mean there, there are areas of it I would agree it's useful and, and prudent and we should we should be getting reparations but there's there's other other elements in which I don't I don't think makes consistent sense from a moral standpoint so the idea that the descendants, your descendants' actions, they force particular required actions on you just by having been linked to them by descendancy, right? Or by lineage. I, I mean, that that has, that. I understand in some situations that can feel right. It's like, well, if somebody did, if your ancestors did wrong in the past, you should make it up to them in the present. But in other situations, it, I mean, it, it almost seems like like, it, like having similar logic as racism itself, saying, you know, I don't like you because you're black, for example. You know, that's a statement about somebody without knowing anything about their char- their individual characteristics because of association to some group, where that's the same for, for blaming somebody for the actions of their descendants or, or saying that because they owe certain actions or owe certain favors due to the actions of their descendants. It, it, it's contrary to the entire idea of fighting racism and fighting, putting judgments upon people that are completely separate from who they are as people or any of the actions they may what, take. What about the argument that you benefited from, obviously, the privilege of your race and uh, over the generations you've benefited from that? One person might argue that, well, you've since you have benefited, that some of that benefit needs to be passed down to the people that may not have benefited. Right. So so the issue with that is I care more as a utilitarian about producing good in society than I do about righting wrongs. So for example, if you if you imagine the current situation where let's say I'm I'm a rich person who's prospered from something in the past. And a current discussion of history says that what I prospered in the past from was at the expense of some other person immorally. So I now owe that person money based on that. Well, a, a different historical account could, could come up, for example, hypothetically, that says, okay, actually, um, you benefited or you were detrimented in some way by that group of people. Even though you're still wealthier now, you were detrimented. So now they owe you money, right? And so the fact that, that a historical look at the current situation can result in two completely con- contradictory uh, recommendations for current action suggests that it, that it necessarily doesn't care about what's actually best in, in the in society right now, what action society is actually going to produce the most good now? If if that's entirely based on just history, which could be anything, then you know, like it seems baseless. I would much rather think, okay, so should I get money from X from from this person, or should I give money to this person? I'm not going to go to the history good books to decide that. I'm going to look. Well, if I have more than you do, I probably should give to you just because of the fact that I have more than you do, and because I didn't do anything personally to earn it. 
and you didn't do anything personally to earn your your dissatisfaction or, or your lot in life. I, where I wouldn't say just because their ancestors were bad people, they now deserve to, to be in negative situations or because my ancestors were so noble and true, we deserve the wealth we've acquired. I, I don't think that has any place in deciding what current actions should. I, I, I view it more also a, more of like a practical approach. I, I don't know how to even quantify uh, how much my benefit needs to be transferred to another person. Like I, I, don't, I don't even know how right. you would quantify that practically. Yeah, um, that's another good point. But, but I think... Understanding the premise of um, either I may have benefited from a certain historical situation and having that understanding and being able to, I think, be practical in terms of I want to do the maximum amount of good, meaning with my current privilege, with my current status, how can I do the most good? How can I help underprivileged groups essentially gain what I have gained in the past. So let me give you an example to flush out where you stand on this. So let's say you have gained, you have a lot more than most people in society. And you gain, so there's three categories. There's A, B, and C. And you belong to A, which is the wealthy in society. Then there's a category B, which used to be the wealthy, but A, you, unjustly took the wealth from B sometime in the past. So they're now like almost as wealthy as you, but not quite as much as they would have been. And then you have C, which let's say an immigrant to, to this society, and they have no historical uh, you know, connection to either A or B. So the question is, should A give the money back to B because they unjustly took the money from B? Or should they go a step further and give it to C, who's actually poor and actually destitute and actually needs it? Right? So effectively, does the circumstances of history increase or decrease you know, the significance of who the money should go to? Or should we only judge based on who's in need for that money in our society, regardless of historical context? Which would you give if you're A? Would you give to B to right a historical wrong? Or would you give to C to f- fix the actual need in your society? And if I can only give it to one of those groups? Well, or how would you split it? Like, Would you decide to give 50-50? Um, I mean, presumably, if you're trying to maximize good, you would want to give 100% to one of them based on which one you felt was actually the most in need. But but what would you do? I would actually do it on a distribution basis based on... So more, it would likely more trend towards two-thirds to C, one-third to B. Okay. And if you view it as a distribution, you can distribute the wealth. Right. To try to okay. equalize. So, so you think that like a two, th- so 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 like sixty six percent of of moral culpability is, of moral moral imperative goes toward feeding the hungry, and thirty three percent goes toward um, righting historical wrongs. That's kind of how you would value uh, the difference between um, the importance of feeding the hungry and the importance of righting historical wrongs. So it's twice as important to feed the hungry as it is to to right. But I think it depends on your metric of good. Right, because you know, is just uh, writing a wrong really the metric? Or let's say if B can only afford food eighty percent of the time, and C can afford food fifty percent of the time, then again, then you, you would do it till it balanced. I would try to balance it. Okay, so so then effectively, what you're saying is, if you would try and balance the ability to buy food, then you're saying that that is the only metric that that should matter morally, and that and that the the metric of you know, what what happened historically isn't relevant in your decision making about how you allocate that money. For me, it wouldn't be relevant. Okay. And I, I would be inclined to agree with that. I, I don't understand. And I do think there's value in learning about the history of events 
in order to be able to avoid those events in the in the future. But I don't think it should it should take place in in the decision about how we allocate our resources. And I think it helps people to accept and recognize the history and uh, where it has led up to the situation. I think just from a humanitarian aspect, I think people expect apologies, people expect acknowledgement of what has happened. But I, I know probably some people will want full reparations in terms right. of maybe monetary reparations. But but based on the practicality of it, I don't know whether practically you can actually do yeah, it. Yeah, sure. I think sometimes it's important to look at though, like how some of the those systems that were maybe put in place by your ancestors, though, like still continue on today, or the damage from that still continues on today. So I think a lot of systems in place are actually really outdated and do need to change. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, there's one thing about reparations, but then there's also ex- there's existing structures and systems that right. continue to dis- yeah. disenfranchise people of certain groups. And I think that's where the reparations are so important because a lot of the impacts from colonization or the systems that were put in place or, you know, the treaties are still like continually causing harm. Right. But of course, in in those situations, it's the harm that we're seeking to mitigate. We're not looking to just destroy the empire of the, or or any remnant of the, of a immoral historical ruling class, right? Uh, If there are some positives so they maybe maybe they started out as negatives, right? They implemented that something that severely negatively crippled a, some some fraction of a society, but in current times that that is still being implemented and it's having massive benefits for everyone in society. You wouldn't tear it down just because it was it, it had historical negative implications. Where I think some people would be inclined to to just, just dismantle anything that once had historical negatives. Is there other topics you want to cover? Purpose of allies. Hmm. What's that going to be about? Will kind of touched on the ally thing, how sometimes there's like this polarized... Actually, no, he, what he was getting at was this polarized, like, Black Lives Matter, white supremacy. Right. But I think going along with that, sometimes there's this thing that you can't question some of the yes. things that the, like, Black Lives Matter movement does. Especially if you're not black, right? Like, yeah. if you're white, you're not allowed to have a say in the in the conversation. Uh, and, and your viewpoints aren't aren't deemed to be as legitimate or legitimate at all, regardless of if the fact that if a black person said the exact same thing, it might be extremely constructive. I, I think that that's a very anti-intellectual, anti-progressive, unfortunate evolution of, of the of the racial discussion currently. Is you have allies trying to create identity politics. They're, they're trying to create take group identities. And then frame them in a positive light to counter the fact that that group's identity had previously been framed in a negative light. And although I understand that and the benefit of that and the empowerment of that, it's still not getting away from the root of the issue, which is that identity, or at least identity as some member of a group that you were born into, should be the least important characteristic in determining anything about you, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, yet, yet they're going the opposite direction and trying to say, no. This is the most important thing about me, my identity. I am a black man. I am a black woman. And you can't take that away from me. And if you're not a black woman, you know, or a black man, you don't have any say. You know, not, not, only, not only does that alienate. Is it you don't have any say in regards to how black life Black Lives Matter conducts their uh, well, advocacy? You, you might be advocacy. excluded from meetings. You might be... Um, you know, if they're if they're if the, 
if you're trying to be a supporter alongside, um, they they might even exclude you from that. Um, they do have some white supporters. So. Well, the problem with Black Lives Matter is that as a group, it's not one central organization. It's Mm-mm. it's it's pretty much anyone can form a Black Lives Matter group and and have their own ideas and and run their meetings their own so way. There's a lack of like consistency. There is, and, like, but yeah, there's lack of structure. But yeah, the the main issue is is that is that is that they're strengthening the idea that identity or belonging to some racial group actually has significance where it really should that's actually something that came up in our group discussion um this idea of like student groups like having like um you know the black student association the caribbean student association germans and like if that creates any kind of conflict whereas on a campus i really don't think it does i don't know if it's because it's just you don't necessarily just because the group exists doesn't mean that they're very prominent and they're creating this in a group out group. Yeah, but I mean, like, to me, welcoming. like some of these groups, it's it's almost just a space, like a safe. I hate using the word, safe but safe space. space. <laughs> but it literally, it's a space where people have a shared experience. So, like Black Lives Matter, I can understand why, for example, I would not fit into Black Lives Matter because I don't share the same experience. I don't look over my shoulder when I walk past a police officer. I don't have to worry about that. You know, but you can't imagine what that would be like and be able to constructively but discuss I can, I can imagine it, but I don't think I can ever really understand what it feels every day to have to... Well, I, I mean, and here, here's the issue is I feel like, I, I feel like discrimination or, or being marginalized is its own thing. And you're right. Perhaps somebody who has never been marginalized never knows what it was, couldn't fully imagine what it would be like to be marginalized. But the problem with identity politics is they say, if you haven't been marginalized in exactly the same way that I have as a black male in this society, then you don't know anything and your opinion is invalid. Where somebody else could have a very similar experience of marginalization, perhaps as a woman instead of as a black person in some sexist area, you know? And so there's a lot of interconnectedness in, in our human experience. And that's what should be, what, what, what should really be the strings tying us all together is that we're all humans. We all share human experience. We all get sad. We've all been rejected in one way or another. You know, um, and, and we should all fight to create an environment of welcoming and inclusion for everybody, no matter what your skin color is. And that's the message that's being missed and that's being actively opposed by the view that, that if you aren't a part of our very particular identity, then you are excluded from sharing in, in our experience when we all share in a human experience. I don't know. Maybe I just don't see that. To me, when I look at Black Lives Matter, I see them as fighting for a particular cause or particular issue related, primarily related to black men and women. Okay, so, so, all, so all that you're saying, I, we, won't, we won't get into... I feel into, like you made a good point, yeah. though. Yeah. Because, like, I've experienced that where I've sort of come at a situation where I said, okay, I've experienced something similar, um, not to that extent, but here's, you know, my experience of it. And then the other person comes back and says, no, you didn't. Like, saying that you... Uh, had this experience that was similar is not valid because it's right. not yeah yeah and 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 what does that exclusion do um, uh, you know in terms of promoting or or destroying the effectiveness of the movement uh, in my mind it prevents also more allies yeah a marginalized community will stay marginalized if if they don't allow 
people outside of that marginalized community to to support them and share in, in, in defending them and 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 when when you're constantly being told you know you, you know you can't sit with us you aren't like us you know you can stand on the sidelines and support us if you want to but don't pretend that you get us or it, it really just forces people away and it also creates an infinite number of just of subdivisions of very specific identities that because within the black community you're going to have okay imagine a gay black man so now oh I'm I'm extra marginalized you know and and and, and imagine being a gay black man who's you know and they just keep stacking on these things but then down each subcategory they're all telling the next category up that they can't share in their experience um, it seems like there's some kind of a desire for you know unique suffering I mean I mean I I, I haven't given a lot of thought about that but that's what comes to mind and I don't know what what's going on psychologically there. Why there's this need to, to imagine that nobody else can possibly understand you. When I do believe that's just factually wrong, that we all share in the human experience and, and sympathy and empathy is something that we can all share for one another regardless of if we were, we were explicitly in exactly the same situation. Yeah, going back to like uh, talking about allies, I think during the Pride episode I talked about, I mean, really LGBT it's a really tiny minority and you really need allies in order to have the rights that LGBT right. people have. I mean, you really do need the support of the allies because otherwise you will not have any rights at all. Yeah. So that's my, that's my stay on identity politics. I think we should treat each other as humans. Is there anything else that we want, we want to talk about? Or um... I haven't touched about like Muslims when people think of racism in Canada, many people think of that as like the group, which personally I don't, so much, but more than indig- indigenous. I think a lot of people oh, do yeah. actually think about it more. Although mm-hmm. I don't think it's actually true. Like I do think that like indigenous people face a lot more like systemic racism, mm-hmm. and probably also just like regular day to day racism. But just when people think of like who's a group Sorry. who faces more racism, they think of like the Muslim community. I think we need to make a distinction between racism and discrimination, or or. Um... That's true. Or bias, because race because you can't be racist by definition against a religion, right? Correct. Um, so, so it's important to make the distinction that, that racism is is uniquely wrong because you're judging somebody for something that they have no control over and that says nothing about them, right? Whereas someone's religion uh, it, it, or someone's worldview, as somebody, let's say, who is a neo-Nazi, right? If, if I say I don't like any neo-Nazis, I'm not being racist. But there could be a reason I don't like all neo-Nazis, where there really can't be a, a, a compelling reason why you don't like all of some race, mm-hmm. right? So I could dislike you know, Muslims because I don't like the way that Muslims are divinely told to treat their, the women in their society or, or, or whatever, right? And, and, it's, and it's very different discriminate against ideas than it is to... But it's so intertwined because when you think of the stereotypical Muslim, it's a brown a... person, right? Yeah. You don't think of a white Muslim. But but the thing is, but... what is it you're disliking about that person you're imagining? Is it that they're brown? But that's the thing. I think, I think this is why it's complicated because I think there's a little bit of overlap. There's people that are right. likely uh, racist because they just don't like brown people. They'll come up with an excuse by saying I don't like Muslims, right? But then there could maybe be legitimate people who maybe do not like Muslims because maybe they are ex-Muslims and maybe they. But it matters on why they don't like brown people. 
So if the person's saying, I don't like brown people because they're brown, well, that might be what they say. But if their reasoning is just because they're brown, then that's just racism, plain and simple, and it's simply wrong. But it's also racism to just assume that all brown people are Muslims. Well, it's not... It is. That, that's... It is if you're going to treat them differently... Like, it's like, oh, that's a brown person, that's a Muslim. I don't like Muslims, but I'm not going to let this okay. person into my store. So there's the assumption that they are, the assumption that they are all that way is, is obviously just, just wrong. But like, I don't, I obviously, I don't know what else to say about that. It's just factually wrong. And stereotyping. You have to be really dumb to think that. But stereotyping isn't the assumption that all are a certain way. It, it's, it's, it's the belief that the likelihood that they are a certain way is higher based on a certain quality. And, and that, although it can create problems in society in terms of, you know, creating an equitable society for everyone, it does provide utility. Uh, it is useful to know if somebody has, let's say, a criminal record uh, when hiring them, right? This is because that says something about the likelihood of their, you know, whatever. Whereas it may also be useful to know if somebody is an atheist or if someone is of a certain religion or... It, it, so, for example, if you were... If you were going to be doing a news outlet that was going to be reporting on uh, some of the negatives in the Muslim community, and you had somebody applying for the job who's a devout Muslim who is obviously going to be in opposition to that cause, there, there's, there's no real issue with filtering based on those statistics. The, the issue that comes up is when, is when a, a guy who's brown is applying for the job, and you and you don't hire him because you're worried that he likely is religious when he's not and the religion would be a problem. Um so so, so I don't I definitely don't see a problem with with categorizing uh or generalizing or creating schemas. It's just more efficient and you can't go through society if you're analyzing every variable there all the time. Yeah, I'll I'll leave that there. I think I mean it's natural for us to use highest probability as a metric to categorize people. But obviously we need to understand that bias ourselves and it's an issue and that impacts how we treat people and i think it does well it's only an issue if it impacts how we treat people who we're wrong about so if if i say i dislike neo-nazis i it should be fair for me to treat neo-nazis not as well as i treat my friends but if i see a bald person and assume they're a neo-nazi because they're a skinhead right then that is a problem so, so I, just, I just want to make sure there's a distinction there because I don't see any problem with, uh, with discrimi- not discriminating, but with, with using the information about somebody that they give you to form judgments about them. I just see problems with the, with the outlier situations when you make gener- usually accurate generalizations. What about, though, when like, businesses treat different um religions differently so in canada we've kind of agreed that we won't do that to other people that regardless of your gender your race your religion that we're going to treat you fairly and equally when we'll define fairly and equally it's like providing services we're going to provide service to everyone fairly and equally you mean like the government is going to provide service oh oh, sorry you're talking talking about businesses oh okay or i mean it could be employment too like in quebec right now you know they they want all religious symbols off of people like all Muslims, no religious symbols. They're doing all though, or but that's the problem. Yeah. They're not. <laughs> they included so. the crucifix as as one of it's, the non-religious exactly. symbols. <laughs> yeah, they, they claim it's a uh, historical symbol or something like that. Like that's an issue. Cultural yeah. symbol, right. right? And this is where it becomes an issue when we well, have to treat all religions 
equally. If, you should, in but terms in of the practice, I don't think it's actually mm, being done. It's right? not done, and also like. I feel like there's also these like higher probabilities when people look at brown people, they're like, they're probably religious. Well, I for I don't actually religious. know if we should treat all religions equally. For example, profiling in an airport. If you're looking for somebody who's likely going to, for somebody but who... But you can't look for someone's religion. Nowhere on a person's passport does it say their religion. It says where they're from, their race. Okay, okay. But, how but, like, can, but that's, you can look at likelihoods and probabilities, right? So if someone who looks like Betty White is getting onto a plane, right, what are the odds that she is going to be uh, you know, a Muslim terrorist. It, it's just much less likely than the maybe the Sikh guy, right? You don't know he's Sikh, right? That's your that's your, your point. Is you looking at him don't know if that he's Sikh and not Muslim, right? But pretty sure Sikhs are terrorists. Well, <laughs> maybe not the best example, but presumably there's some amount of knowledge you could give to the the people who are filtering at airports, okay? That that would end up being valuable in their search, where if they're forced to just search, if, if they're allowed to search 100 people of every, you know, 10,000, right? It's important that they're, that they're using that time to search the most probable people who, for yeah. committing the offense. They shouldn't be searching the two-year-old that comes yeah. through just because he happened to be the fifth person and yeah. they just do every fifth, right? Yeah. But, but so practically, I think it makes sense, but let's, uh, if you were to put on your uh, empathizing hat on, if you were to put yourself into the shoes of that brown person, that's probably not going to be the greatest experience Every time at the airport, right, you're flagged, you're removed from the line, you're searched. Right, so you have to, you have to take... And everyone sees that. Well, you have to do a cost... And, and it continues to promote... Per- I mean, perpetuates it. It perpetuates it, but mm. obviously, statistically, yeah. Let's, let's, let's divorce the, the rational side, where statistically, the numbers right. would make sense. But then there's the, 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 human, emotional. the emotional human aspect. Right, it's a trade-off. You have to, you have to say, what is more valuable to me? preserving the feelings of X number of, of mm-hmm. people or preventing the likely deaths of X number of people had we not done that, right? So you'd have to wait, let's say... Although you, we have to be aware there's a very, very low probability... Of course, and, of, and, that, and that's factored that in. So that, right. is, that is factored in, right? So if it, it can be shown that you have an airport that is using, uh, you know, um, ta- like completely unbiased tactics and you have an airport that's using, you know, all the evidence at their disposal... And, and it turns out that, that, that there's a very negligible difference in terms of the effectiveness of preventing death and preventing... It's theater. It's, right. It's security theater. Well, well, then, well, then, of course. But, I mean, if there is a probability, I think, I think each situation should be weighed. I don't think you can say, oh, we should treat all religions equally just because. You know, just like, like saying, we, I don't think we should... I think given no other information, we should treat all informations equally. But, but if in our current society, one religion is being more problematic than another, I don't see... Any reason why we can't deal with it proportionate to the problem they're causing? So, will in, in regards to like in group and out group, would really the solution be we should just have a colony on Mars and then we have Earth and we will just be against the Martians? Well, per- personally, what what I think the the solution to so okay so so to, to humor that yes, I do think that if uh, we had other colonies on other planets that perhaps that would bring Earth together as more one in-group, um, and that could be a good thing. Like, at least we're all human. You know, like, when the aliens attack, I feel like we'll definitely care less about whether or not you're a black human or a white human, and more about the fact that you're a human and those are aliens, right? But uh, on, a, on a more practical note, I think that the solution to some of our psychological biases and to some of our currently effective stereotypes would be just to have more access to on-demand information about 
about people and, and perhaps technology can enable that. What so do for, you mean by on demand? So for example, if if the reason why we generalize, I'll give the example as a landlord. If I have multiple tenants who, who come and, and one of them has a criminal record, right? That might imply other negative things about their character. And given that I don't have enough time to to fully investigate into that person as a why did you get this criminal record? Does it affect your likelihood of you know damaging my property or whatever else? I don't have the time or resources to, to look into that. So I just discard as a generalization and move on to people who, who, who fit more probabilistically. Where if I, if I had some kind of, let's say up in the cloud, it was just stored all of this information. And, and I'll, as a landlord, let's say, somebody could just give you access to X information which then I could just look and say, okay, so they've actually never missed a rent payment. They've never damaged any property. Uh, um, you know, the criminal record was because of this. I would then have that information. I would have no, other, no reason to filter them due to that criteria anymore. Um, the same as if I look at a black person, uh, for example, and, and I'm in a society where, you know, black, black crime is much more prevalent and, and, and where white crime is almost non-existent, for example, hypothetically, you know, I, I might, I might, be a little bit more timid to walk down the same side of the road as a black person where if I can see that person coming and you know facial recognition or something and then I say oh this person has no criminal record he's actually a good person right I would have no reason to have that bias against him anymore so I could keep going on and giving examples but basically what I'm saying is I think I think that increasing amounts of on-demand access to information of individual people of of anything, um, even just on general statistics, yeah. some people have misrepresentations. Yeah, I, I, I mean, there's the information piece, but the interpretation of that data is important because going back to like the landlord example, if you were a landlord, you would not be investing the time to look at more detailed information. You just probably wouldn't. I mean, we're all human beings. We're well, that's not. why it has to be on demand and easily accessible. So currently, it's it's the fact that it takes time to get that information, which is what is causing me to rely on generalizations. I think it would be easier if there was a structure that measured. Uh, this is pretty much like a Black Mirror episode, but like your social points, essentially. Mm-hmm. Well, that's <laughs> and, exactly, and exactly what I'm talking same, about. Same like in China, where yeah. uh, citizens have social points and. I mean, your, your trustworthiness and your uh, ability to do good is measured on a metric. But then that leads into a lot of other issues in terms of... Of course who, it does. ...who determines right. uh, how good you are. But I do think that could eliminate racism to a large degree. I do think that if, if we had more specific information on people, then the need or the benefit of generalizing or stereotyping would be lessened. Um, and at least the number of people that are biased or somewhat racist as a result of, gener- of potentially accurate generalizations, those people would no longer hold biases. And Unless there's systemic things which are disadvantaging certain yeah, groups, I can still and then see, that just gets perpetuated. I can still see people abusing that information. More information, depending on who has power, would be able to utilize that information. In and they might say ways. that, like... Like, if it's a certain person power, they can decide what is good. Exactly. And those might be more, I don't know, culturally relevant for certain groups of people and not so for other people. If we were using the Black Mirror episode as an example, so where people get social points, um, in the episode, people gave you points and you gave other people points and that sort of thing. But, like, 
I think that racism could still exist because, like, let's say you don't want to give black people points Mm because you don't really like them. Or you could say, like, oh, I don't like black people because usually they're ones and I only like fives. I I don't know if you noticed in the Black Mirror episode, all the black people actually had lower scores. (laughs) Oh, really? I didn't notice. If you rewatch the episode, you'll notice all the black people would always have a much lower score than everyone else. So that, that's where the efficiency of the system at, at measuring would be really important. And, and you have to build into that system anti-discriminatory kind of processes, right? So you make sure that you know, the system is not filtering racial characteristics, for example. But yeah, at the very least, a system like that would prevent, let's say, a, a well-educated, you know, great person, you know, no, no criminal record black person from being discriminated against when he goes in to get a job, when he when he, he walks into a social club, you know, all of those. What? I don't believe that. What like, if he grew up in a neighborhood where there was crimes, he got involved with crime, but he was actually was a good person. Well, that, that's a separate issue. He right? didn't get very good grades in school because he didn't have enough food in the morning, so he couldn't focus. Well, I, I would stand right. by my right to avoid criminals. He's not a criminal, though. He just had some... Oh, so, well, oh I'm sorry. I, if what you're saying person. is his, his circumstances led him to become a person... That, would, that, that has a number of things that I might want to avoid. Mm-hmm. I stand by my right to avoid that person, but I still would want to fix the systemic issues that led to the creation of that person. Got it. But I'm not saying, you know, we have to treat all people. Like, I, like, oh, this guy murdered my family, but I know he did it because he grew up in a poor family and his parents beat him, so therefore I'm just going to chill with the guy. Like, you, you know, I, I don't think we should go that far, but we should fix the system. I don't believe in people's capability of, like, putting those judgments behind them, even when given all of the information. I, I think just it would don't help. Th- I don't know that it would. I think there'd be some people who it wouldn't help with, but I do think it would help in other situations. I, I don't think we can trust people. <laughs> I don't trust people. <laughs> I'm trying to end on a positive Moral note Moral of the story, don't trust people. <laughs> Wait, so can we talk about the positive things? What's... Do, do we... What positive things? Canada doesn't have as many guns. Yay. And we're multicultural, at least in our urban centers. <laughs> do we have hope for the future? Are we feeling hopeful? I heard it once said that racism is like running a 100-meter race where one person, your competitor, has gotten a 50-meter lead and you're just starting the race. So I don't know how we bridge that gap and make things more equal I don't it, it would be it would take a lot of a lot of work but there are groups who that doesn't actually get rid of racism it just means that the groups toward which racism is directed towards changes like I know the Irish came up because you know in the past they have experienced a lot of racism here but now they don't but that doesn't actually get away with which changes who the target is not the underlying issue uh, I do think that in the future we can get rid of some of the if we work hard, we can get rid of some of the systemic disadvantages. Um, we can get rid of some of the political re- motivations for um, pitting us against each other, right? So politicians using our psychology against us, the fact that we do form in groups and out groups. If, if we, we can solve all of those things, the, the, but I don't think we can solve our own psychology, at least not in the, for the time being. The best we can do with our own psychology is to put systems in place that actively like prevent our psychology, our predisposition to bias and whatnot, from affecting the important decisions that are made in society. Right. So I do imagine you could create a society 
where, where all the right things are in place to prevent us from act, acting on our negative psychology. And we've eliminated the intentional negative actors who are playing on that psychology to put, pit us against each other for political gain or economic gain. Call me a pessimistic. I, I have a lot of fear over what's been happening with Trump and the ripples that have been coming in with racism and uh, white supremacy and that sort of thing. I just hope that, I hope when America solves itself, that we will also get those ripples of solving that. Not just America. I know. Yeah, I mean, you look, obviously in Canada, we're seeing things bubbling up from, let's say, more right-wing groups. Uh, so I'm also maybe a little pessimistic, but really it's within our control. I mean, we can't just, if you, we do feel passionate about making change in the world, we have to be pretty active about it. I don't know, is there anything we can do? I think things moving. have gotten a lot better, and I think governments are also trying to be more inclusive. So I think overall, like I think it has get gotten better. Yeah. I think right now it's kind of like a iffy time of like right wing supremacy. Yeah, but type we things. usually but I think we probably have than... to be proactive about yes making sure change does occur or we are moving in the right direction. I think it's a positive indication that. Uh, white power groups and stuff are starting to come up because I think that that what it's showing is that they're coming up in opposition to a very real movement a very real leftist mm. social inclusion movement and and uh, and it's the polarization that's causing all of those negative actors to be to, to be more more you know energized and, and that there's no movement toward positive change that wouldn't come into conflict with these people with negative views and that this conflict has to happen and we have to come out victorious in order to get to the next phase where, where, where that's in the, in the past, mm-hmm. right? The same way with like the, the civil, civil war in, uh, in America, right, over black rights issues. There were people with ingrained views and, and they, they had to be confronted. And sure, they, they might have sat at home and been happy and not out in the streets so long as they're getting their way. But once someone starts saying, no, we're going to free your slaves, we're going to... Right then, they get up in arms, and someone could say, "Well, look, look at all these people getting up in arms. Like we're going in the wrong direction." But no, it's the result of the positive movement being seen. Uh, so I just hope that we come out on top. So how do we come up on top? <laughs> That's the question. <laughs> I think that Will is just about to end us on a positive note. There. <laughs> how do we come out on top? Eh? I think a big thing is making sure that the voices of a few loud right-wing people don't overpower the majority of people who are kind of in the middle and the left who maybe sometimes aren't kind of shouting. I feel like there's been a lot of politics recently where one group is shouting louder even though they're actually a smaller group and just kind of making sure that we're really looking at what are, are all the options, what are the values and making sure we're not just listening to who is the loudest. And young people need to vote. Please vote. Yeah. Yeah. The, the lowest turnout are the young people. There's fingers being pointed across the room. <laughs> You're just talking who, about the municipal election. <laughs> who did not vote on this table? <laughs> I did. I voted provincially and federally. Municipally. I can't say that word. But do it. Yeah. Oh. So I think that's the conclusion. That was vote. a great oh. <laughs> episode. We have some announcements. So the next meeting is Wednesday, November 14th. Dr. Annalise Trudell works at ANOVA, which is the combination of the Women's Community House and the Sexual Assault Centre of London. 
She's going to talk to us about the dynamics of sexual and domestic violence and the work that ANOVA does in London. Very topical right now. And this is going to be a great lecture because last year we donated some items and some money to ANOVA uh, at our winter solstice. And we're going to do that again at our next winter solstice. So come on out and see what you're donating your money to and hopefully donate again. Okay. Well, I apologize if this episode is going to be a bit of a mess. But <laughs> yeah, hopefully you're going to play that before they listen to the episode. <laughs> no. <laughs> Sorry. Retro- retroactively apologize for what you just listened to. <laughs> Please listen again. <laughs> should we pay reparations to our audience for the next episode? I think we should make the next episode extra good. Anyways, okay. Thanks for listening, everyone. See you, you later. Agenda out. Someone else want to make that point for me? I don't know what point you're making. Me neither anymore. Uh.